Hello, and welcome again to the Ortho Real Podcast. I am Dr. Matt Barber, and we are excited to be joined today by Dr. Andrew Wickline from New York. Uh, Dr. Wickline is uh, actually the highest volume joint replacement surgeon in the state of New York. Uh, has a practice that is extremely innovative, driven by data and results. And we're excited to talk to him today. Uh, Dr. Wickline, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. I see you on LinkedIn all the time. You always have uh, interesting stuff to say, so I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I know you are a uh, fellow of the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, tell us about your, your training and your experience and how you came to be the uh, the superstar that you are now. Well, uh, first, I, I have to thank my, my uh, I went to Union College and already met. We a seven-year medical program. I did it for residency. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great residency. We, we did a lot of surgery. There was opportunity to do uh, an extra call. And, you know, these days, that's, it's not, you can't work more than 80 hours. But, you know, if you really want to have great skills, you, you got to be there. You got to be, you got to be doing the work. And uh, I was fortunate that I was able to, I was on call as a senior, uh, you know, fourth and fifth level uh, resident. You know, sometimes, you know, every night, it doesn't mean you're up all night. It means that you're available, right? And um, I've actually lots of surgery with uh, many different amazing mentors uh, in, the, in the Albany. And then Professor Borden uh, and uh, Victor Krebs uh, and uh, the rest of the crew uh, and Cleveland Clinic, they, they did a great job uh, showing me a kind of a different way to look at things from a very large system. And uh, Les was really... Uh, and, and he was an amazing surgeon. Um, he was no nonsense, no frills, and could look at a, a joint and, and know exactly what the issues were. And uh, uh, he and the rest of uh, the clinic mentors were really instrumental in showing me how to do things a little different. You know, it's, Albany was kind of New York City based, and Cleveland Clinic, you know, and a lot of the guys there have been trained out of the. Uh, uh, tough, so it was kind of Boston-based. So it was, it was like Boston, uh, it was like the Yankees versus the Red Sox in some way. So very, very helpful to have two different perspectives. Uh, Dr. Borden was a good friend of, of my professional mentor, Dr. Headley, and I've uh, met him as well. They did some, oh, yeah. some combined yeah. meetings and fellow uh, mm-hmm. reunions together. Uh, just an incredibly bright guy and a real gentleman. Uh, great to be around. So... Over the last couple of years, you have gotten a lot of exposure around some of your publications in the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation uh, for knee and hip replacement. And I think we could drill down on a lot of different parts of that. But tell me uh, what you can about your therapy-free total knee replacement. So, you know, uh, as a... Many people heard in a previous podcast, you know, the patient is the customer, right? And, and sometimes we forget that. And you have to ask the patient every day and, and that they're in there for follow up. Okay, how am I doing? How's my staff doing? You know, do you like my team? You know, um, because the team wants the feedback too. You know, you're asking them, a lot of them, so they want to hear, you know, that your patients are doing well and, and reached out. And, you know, a lot of times patients will remember certain uh, members by name and, and ask me to talk to them. So, it's a great way for team building, right? But also, it's a great way to you tell them, look, I got big shoulders. You got to tell me, you, you tell me the good things, or what are the bad things? 
you know, is my phone, uh, is it hard to, to call into my office? Is, uh, you know, you, you kind of get the picture. In any event, uh, the one thing that patients always told me at, at uh, uh, way back, you know, at the three months uh, follow up, when the patient's finally happy with the knee uh, at that time, they would say, Dr. Wickland, I, I love my new knee, but I really don't want you to fix the other one because the therapy was so painful. I, I don't really ever want to do that again. It was a really strenuous session and, and uh, you know, taking pain pills all the time. And, and if you could, if you, you can do my other knee if I don't have to do therapy. And so there were a number of therapists in our area, some, some more aggressive than others. And I always thought that aggressive was the right way to be. But then I, I looked at the patients who went up north uh, to the Adirondacks, and they didn't have easy access to therapy, and they just said, we're going to show me four or five extra uh, exercises that uh, I can do that, you know, I'll do them for you, but I guess I can't get to a therapist. So you show me, you know, this, this list of 20 that the therapist gave me is too many, you know, a dumb it down for me. And so that's what I did. I created, uh, you know, four simple exercises. You do it uh, uh, every single hour while you're awake, ideally. Uh, I give them a check boxes, um, and it's essentially like CPM once an hour. You know, bending and training the knee, do some ankle pumps, do a very short walk. Those are the things that are important. Get the motion, control the swelling. Just like, you know, when we have ankle fractures, if you don't operate on that right away, what do you got to do? You got to wait for a week for the, the, the fracture pushes to go away, right? So exactly the same for total knee. Why are we, we, we torturing that tissue, which we've already tortured with the surgery, by asking them to do sit to stand, squats, and lunges, and you know, can you, can you walk a quarter mile? You know, you know, uh, a week post op. Now that really is a mistake on that tissue. The tissue is traumatized enough. So when I looked at those patients, and I looked at the patients who were here in town going to my aggressive inpatient rehab at the time. You know, I had doubled the manipulation rate uh, for those inpatient rehab patients uh, compared to the patients up north, and I had uh, more narcotic use in those patients. And it, no, it, it became very clear what the answer was. It would be a, aggressive therapy is a mistake. And uh, so seven years ago, I, I started embarking on this. At that time, everyone made fun of me. But, you know, as you said previously in another show, you know, at AUKUS, from the podium, aggressive therapy may not be the answer. So, um, so anyone who's listening, at least think that. I get, I get it. It goes against convention. But, you know, I had a guy drive up for me for my cascade program for eight hours to come to my, my facility in uh, Utica, New York, um, because we offer the lowest cost uh, and, and no therapy. And he's eight days post-op, has 115 degrees of range of motion, never saw a therapist, uh, and hasn't taken a single pain pill. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's very impressive, and you've got a lot of great thoughts around that. Do you consider that then to be, it's certainly a different direction for that therapy. Is it instead of therapy free, is it self-directed therapy or how do you consider you know, I that? Think that's a better, I think it's a more fair term, you know, just like you know, at one point I did the most volume in New York. I don't want to do the most volume. You know, my, my wife uh, has had some medical issues so, uh, and uh, you know, you, you have to reassess, right? Uh, and, but my initial term was therapy for you total knee, meaning that you don't have to go to outpatient therapy. And currently with coronavirus, of course, this patient who drove up to see me, he loved that. There's 18 less potential, you know, exposure risks, you know, going to a facility to, to work with someone. Um, 
you know, uh, I, yeah. tell me again what, what, uh, the question. Again. I want to make sure <laughs> I, I answer it first. No, I, I think you did. I think it, it's is. Do you consider that self-directed therapy? Because it sounds like you've uh, yeah. you've really given I mean, yeah, patients a lot tool. Of people in the market. Yeah, lots of people in the market that are, are are offering to do that. But the reality is, if you teach them well, most patients don't need. As, as in my study, right, eighty-five percent of our patients use no physical therapy through ninety days post-op with an average range of motion of one hundred ninety degrees uh, at three weeks. So. You know, and I'm working on getting that better, right? Educating better. But you're right; it's self-directed. Um, and and for those patients who are failing, I'm, I absolutely use my therapy colleagues. Uh, I'm not saying that no therapy. I'm just saying change when you intervene with therapy. So yeah, I think that sparks a lot of fascinating questions for me uh, about this because, as you say, certainly I've got friends that are are therapists and and some that are listening to this that that. You know, we're like, what? I mean, this is, you know, this is. Oh, very, yeah. Very... I mean, my therapist and uh, my poor therapist this time, I brought them all into a meeting to my office and said, listen, I'm, this is where I'm going, going with this. I know that's not what everyone uh, wants to hear, uh, but, you know, I, I think this is the right answer. And, you know, there were a lot of people angry with me. I think initially, uh, five years ago, I lost some business, but the outcomes were so much better. Uh, that business came back because word of mouth, you know, patients go where the, you know, where they can get better quicker and have less pain and have less cost. Um, but you know, none of my therapists have, have, uh, you know, closed their office, right? Mm-hmm. So ultimately there was different work for them to do. And, you know, at six weeks, some of those patients do need therapy. Sometimes they're three weeks need therapy. And you see in a study, 16% of those patients did need therapy to, to get there. So... It's just finding it's just right sizing in our therapy. That's a great way to think about it, and I think that's pushed me to at least three more questions here uh, about this. So, one for for patients who who may be thinking about a knee replacement that you know maybe don't have the the type of, of background and understanding that you do in this space. Why would I want to do this? You know, every my neighbor went to therapy. Everybody I know that's had a knee replacement has gone to outpatient physical therapy. Why would I want to consider that? Well, uh, I guess first I would say, then oh, ask that friend, ask five friends that total knee went to therapy if they liked it. Number one, and then the therapists don't like. It. I have two therapists that work with me now. They, they help me with. The, I do one visit pre-op. Uh, the therapist meets with them on my ASD or at the hospital post-op, verifying that the patient can do these the self-directed exercises. Um, and those therapists, the one therapist helped me do the hip study. She, she is a doctor of physical therapy, and she's taken a lot of flack from her colleagues for helping me do that study. But she sees the difference. When, you know, you want to want to know when you go to work every day that you're not hurting people, and that you're actually helping them get better. And so she's very pleased to kind of see patients on a different aspect. And, get, and rescue those patients who aren't following and aren't on track. Um, but she views now and totally sees that the, you know, the aggressive therapy isn't the right way to go. So, you know, I have, I do have therapists, colleagues, and patients who, who are, who are own kids are therapists who are worried. And now uh, those therapists, I just had one from Colorado call me said, you know, I, I didn't believe, I didn't, didn't think this was a good idea, but my mom was so convinced by you. 
you know, I, I, uh, but I'm shocked at how quick this is recovered, way different than what we do in our office. And we are now changing the way we do the, the therapy in our office to a less aggressive, uh, uh, you know, stay away from strength. I mean, let me ask you a question that when you've had those you know, occasional patients who, who've uh, fallen around three weeks post-op and it's put open their incision and uh, you have to emergently bring them back to the operating room to, to clean that up. What's the tissue like? Uh, it's terrible, right? Yeah. It's like throwing jello together. I mean, the, the sutures don't want to hold. And that's exactly the time where patients are finally getting some motion when, when the, the standard model, uh, uh, you know, in the textbook says it's time to start strengthening. Right when the tissue is in. And, you know, doing sit stands and you know, when you, when you do a sit stand without arms, you know, in, in a seated position, that's a lot of torque going through that extensorectal mapping that is prepared, you know, up to eight times your body weight in some places. And, you know, that's where we were seeing injuries. We, we presented that at World Office Conference that, you know, by getting going away from formal therapy, we had 8% reduction in office emergency office phone calls from, quote-unquote, something happened in therapy. Because they're just, they're just being too aggressive. You're blowing my mind here. I mean, great thoughts and, and really some, you know, back to basic science about tissue healing and even how we used to think about tendon repairs and things like that of when those mm-hmm. are weakest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're exactly right. You, you, I think, answered a little bit of my second question in there, but who who does need therapy or who does need formal therapy? Are, are, you, are you rescuing the ones that are not progressing or how do you do that? So a couple things. Number one, the number one worst patient in my practice is a 58-year-old male. Um, these patients are, are I guess two things. I'm not sure if their pain level is different from the previous generation. Now, I'm, I'm pretty close to that, so you know, I'm not saying anything that I'm not saying about myself. My wife says I'm a baby. Uh, but um, in my practice, those patients have a toughest time. And what I really think, at one point I thought, well, it's just because it's, uh, it's that generation. Uh, yeah, I heard that at a meeting, but now I'm not so sure. I think actually mentally, as, as, a, as a, in the current world that we live in, you're kind of at that age, you're kind of at that, you're at the peak of whatever job you're doing, right? I'm an expert. I'm a, I'm a electrician. I'm a master electrician at the 58 years old. Uh, and I know best. And, you know, and, and it's just the way society is, you know, men kind of have that, whereas what these women are, are, are where society is, as you grow up as a woman sometimes, I think women are more um, willing to follow directions. And I, mean, I always ask this to my patients, you know, uh, if you know, a couple, you know, if, if the wife buys the lawnmower and the man buys the lawnmower, uh, husband buys the lawnmower, who's going to read the instruction book when they put the lawnmower together? The wife is every single time. Not the man. The man thinks, oh, I know better. I can put it together. And he's got six parts left over. And he has to, uh, he has to go back to the manual finally. And, you know, it's the same little age little thing about directions. Who asks for the directions, the man or the woman, right? The woman's smart. She gets it done. You know, we're not so bright sometimes. So, uh, um, so I think that's really the answer. Is, and so these guys think that, you know, the, the bending and the uh, straightening hurts. So, uh, I'll do the, the fourth exercise, which is a, a walk. This one says the walk. So I'll walk all over. You know, I'll show him, I, you know, and, and, and that's an easy exercise to walk. It doesn't hurt as much. But what they do is create more swelling. Fluid doesn't compress. 
And so now they, they get even further behind in their range of motion. So the number one uh, culprit I would say is that I watch out for is the 58-year-old male. Every single patient gets that the same soapbox talk that I'm giving you right now about what they're going to do wrong and why, why they can't, why they must resist the urge to not follow the instruction book, which is the book that I give every patient. Um, I just had a 53-year-old uh, male nurse uh, did his first knee and at day five. I said, how you doing? I'm coming along and I'm walking all over. I said, uh-oh. Now send me some pictures of your range of motion. She was 75 degrees. You know, I, I want 90 at least every single time, every hour you do this exercise, I want to be 90. And so I had to send them to therapy. But, you know, again, I checked in at that day five. Are you at 90? Send me a picture. Nope, not at 90. So he went to therapy. When he second me uh, four weeks later, uh, you know, he followed the book. He didn't walk all over. The scoring was less. He was able to achieve 90 every single time. Took less pain pills. Had an easier recovery. So I think that's the number one patient. Number two are the patients that have more anxiety uh, and or fibromyalgia. I think those patients are, you know, can be a challenge and they need extra. They need the mental, they really need therapy as the mental exercise to know that they're on track. Uh, they need to hear that more. So I think those two, uh, those two groups are, my, uh, are, are the go-tos. Obviously, if you have 15 allergies, that's a patient that, that you know, has a hypersensitivity medication so I think those patients are potential risk I guess a long answer to your question no I think that's brilliant it, it, it absolutely feels like you're looking into my practice or that of any other joint replacement surgeon in the country I, I think those thoughts are, are spot on so my last one you know that those being a little more patient and therapist directed um, if we're turning this back to surgeons do you do anything different uh, technically in the OR uh, for those patients if you know they're not going to have formal therapy do you uh, balance the knee, uh, you know, quote unquote, a little more loose or, or try to, you know, do anything different to enhance range of motion after surgery? I do not. I, I think, um, you know, I have a lot of computer navigation experience. I did it from 2004 to 2020. And uh, I have now gone away from that because I've got 16 years of experience with, with x-rays that look perfect every single time. And, of course, have some patients that are unhappy. And the unhappy knees are the knees that are not, you know, that are not, they need to be, I don't want to say tight, but they need to have minimal excess play. And so I think uh, um, that, that that is the most important factor and a happy recovery, a happy knee is a knee that, you know, um, easily flexes and extends, uh, you know, during surgery, but there should not be tons of excess medial and lateral, and, you know, uh, uh, opening. Um, I test every knee before surgery. Uh, I, I love it when a patient has a normal knee on the opposite side. I try to, I try to uh, match a normal knee on the other side. Uh, but, um, no, I'm not... I'm not changing my my technique to get this easy range of motion. Um, easy range of motion just comes because it's, it's five minutes an hour rather than a ninety minute session that that makes the music as well. And so, uh, in fact, I do I do a standard uh, medial parapetellar orthotomy. I I'll make a bigger incision if I need to. Um, when people come out to see me and they see the results, they think I've got some mini incision. I tried all those things. I, I didn't really find a huge difference in my practice. Um, so I like a normal standard, uh, incision that can be extensile if necessary. That way I know the parts where they belong. 
but uh, I will tell you that you know this year I have uh, have moved to a, a kinematic alignment and trying to trying to match that uh, uh, anatomic uh, femur, make the femur the femur I put in look exactly like the one that the patient had you know five years prior to surgery. So let me let me have that lead into the next question. Um, you've talked about kinematic alignment, and I, I, I believe uh, if we've uh, talked a little bit previously, you've uh, started using a medial pivot design uh, implant within the last year um, for the the really uh, nerdy knee guys and surgeons listening to this, uh, like myself. Tell me uh, about that and your experience with that, and what. What does that kinematic alignment mean for you? What are you shooting for with that? So I've I've kind of done the whole gamut. Uh, I did you know, CR. That was how I trained with the board. And the problem with CR, you know, you can't sometimes hard to balance that uh, PCL. And then six weeks out, or three months out, or a year out, they pop the PCL. So now they got uh, you know some flexion and stability. And I find that uh, you know a challenge. And nobody wants to have a repeat operation. Uh, so I, I always find it somewhat challenging to, to balance that, uh, uh, particularly with mechanical alignment as our as this overarching convention that we've always said that's the right answer, right? So as as more and more of those cases went by, I went to a CS, you know, so substituting you know, deep dish type of polyethylene, and uh, um, you know that worked fairly well, but still, you know, with a bad barrister, now suddenly I need. It's sort of mechanical alignment. I'm taking a ton of lateral tibia, and uh, 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 that makes matters even worse for stability. And then you do multiple releases, which makes the leg swell. You get fracture blisters. They don't get the motion. You know, so again, not. Mm, I wasn't happy with that. So I went down. Uh, one of the things, one of the people I operated with was uh, Lester Board, uh, Lowry Barnes. And, uh, you know, Lowry has uh, developed a needle pivot. He had a lot of thoughts in this space. And, you know, it really wasn't quite catching what he was telling me at the time. And, you know, but as, as more and more data is coming out, you know, I figured I would, I would try it. And so I do use a needle pivot knee now. I love the anterior posterior stability. Um, it, it, uh, it's shocking how there's very little anterior posterior uh, shock. It's almost like you return an ACL uh, uh, to the knee. And, and that's, you know, what amazes me using a needle pivot design, um, again, I, the only one I've used is, is Medacta. Um, using this design, I, I'm shocked at how quickly patients are able to recover stairs. You know, I'm seeing some patients at two weeks doing reciprocal stairs, which I, I, I never saw, even with a TS knee, uh, even with a, a CR knee. They weren't doing reciprocal stairs at two weeks. Uh, oh. Going down, you know, I'm seeing that two to three weeks at best with a medial pivot. But, you know, going down was three months with a uh, posterior stabilizing. So I really think that the, the medial pivot allows, at least the design, that the, the one I'm currently using, again, I can't speak for all of them, um, allows an amazing amount of anterior posterior stability. And, you know, a lot of patients uh, complain about that anterior knee pain. And we, we think it's due to this clunk. We think it's due, I just don't think we're tensioning the anterior uh, compartment well. Uh, except in this design, I'm seeing much better tension. There's less of that anterior posterior play of the tibia. Uh, and so we don't have to fire the quad through the entire arc of going up the stairs. 
Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I, you know, again, some of these guys are way better than me. You can see analysis. may be able to say, no, we're kind of totally wrong. But what I can tell you, clinically, two weeks, reciprocal gait pattern in two weeks, you know, uh, for a contractor who needs to be able to go up and down stairs uh, to uh, assess the job, uh, he's not ready to do it yet, but he wants to at least start, you know, making a plan for that new bathroom and model at his next site. He can do it in two weeks. That's pretty impressive. Do you have that with your knees? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, and I, I think that sort of the overarching concepts you're speaking to are exactly what you said before, which is that happy knee is one that extends and flexes easily, uh, but has a great deal of stability. Uh, it's it's yeah, that, that yeah, goal yeah, yeah. of of ligament isometry, and I, I really, you know, honestly, I believe that that whether it's custom implants or robotics or or, or kinematic alignment or, or really any of these things are driven by by that stability, by, by the, the ligament Correct. isometry where we're not having condylar liftoff, where we have very smooth uh, contact throughout that range of motion, and it's not, it's not uh, tensioning the soft tissues in an aberrant way when, when people walk or stair climb or things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're trying to be uh, the least wrong, if you will, um, as far as... Yeah, exactly. I, I would agree with that, yeah. So, uh, great thoughts on that, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you've you've had some uh, some publications about knee replacement and hip replacement in ten pills or less um, opioid sparing surgery. Um, direct this to to patients and to the medical community and everybody. Um, why would we want to do that? And tell me about that. Well, if you're an employer or a uh, commercial payer or CMS, there's data out there, I think it's the cast light, uh, C-S-T-L-I-C-T, showing that the typical commercial payer uh, patient uh, costs them about $10,000 a year. So, you know, if, they're, if their premium is $17,000 for the year, you know, they're making a $7,000 profit on that, on that person that they can then use to spend outlier, right? Where if you look if you're an opioid addicted patient, you cost nineteen thousand plus dollars, so almost double the cost, and now you lose money on that patient. So first of all, opioid addiction has a direct cost to insurers and uh, to employers, um, uh, as well as to you know that fam- that personal family that now has to deal with this problem, and you know, and uh, whether or not that person loses their job ultimately. You know, so opioid addiction has. It's for real. So, I, I realize that the pandemic has has uh, killed any, any press on this, but you know, it is a real problem in every community in the country. Do you agree? A hundred percent. And and clarify that too. When we talk about um, opioid addiction, I, I think there's a. I'm struggling for the right way to say this, but there's there's sort of a, a real pejorative around that, or the context is is. You know, I have patients say to me, well, you know, I, I'm not a dope head, uh, but, but I need this. I'm hurting. And, and so we're, we're talking, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about patients that, you know, require narcotics chronically uh, that are, have been on mm-hmm. narcotic medications for, for months and years. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, and there's, there's, there's so many different factoids that are out there. You know, one you know, one fact uh, that uh, I see frequently in the meetings is uh, 
you know, a 24-hour prescription of opioids taken, you know, around the clock. It has up to a 6% risk of permanent addiction. Uh, 10-day supply can lead to up to a 20% risk of permanent addiction. Um, you know, and you know, there's multiple studies showing that, you know, many practices across the country, you know, 50 pills, 60, 90, 156. I mean, these, that's a crazy number of opioids. And so what we have to do is patients need to understand the back of stuff. The real answer to keeping patients off of opioids is, of course, you know, setting up a whole program, an education program. I think that's the number one. And my paper talks about how to do that and what is involved uh, for hip orphanage. And then number two, that, that education, that booklet, you have to explain to the patient when they're going to have pain, why they're having pain, and what to do to control the pain without opioids first, and then, you know, uh, uh, use the opioids. So, um, for example, after told me, I tell patients that three periods that they, they might need an opioid. At 36 to 48 hours and the swelling peaks after their initial surgery, you know, uh, they might, uh, they might have, they're going to have increased pain most likely. The block inside the knee is wearing off. I use a pain ball uh, currently and uh, so I tell them to turn the pain ball up, back off on the exercises for two hours. Still having pain, maybe try a gabapentin. Uh, uh, still having pain, okay, uh, turn the pain ball up one more time and maybe take a tramadol. Uh, so that's, that's number one. So by, by noon, on post-up day two, the patient is usually kind of, they've, they've gotten over that hump. But if they know it's coming, and they know that this is, this is all going to get better by noon the next day, most patients won't take a pill because they know I explained to them what's going to happen. Then I tell the patient the next spike is going to be when the pain ball wears off. Between three and five days, you're going to have a six-hour window when that pain ball wears off. Again, same thing, back off on the exercises. Ice and elevate, maybe take a gallon of tension. Uh, uh, maybe, uh, and then again, having pain, maybe they could trim it off. And in between day seven and 10 in our, in our data, we saw that patients would, uh, suddenly have a, about 10% of patients have this day that suddenly they can't even explain what happened. They just, they're losing their mind. It hurts, hurts, hurts. Okay, back off. Try to get a try to trim it off. Um, and then randomly at, uh, three weeks after surgery, many patients who never use a single pill, they can't sleep. So they'll use a pill to sleep. And I don't think that's a great option for trying to sleep. So we try to tell patients that you know, there are other options to let us know it's having trouble and so forth. So if you explain when you're going to have trouble and why, and it's amazing. Patients will say, this book is spot on, Doc. How did you know I was going to feel this way? It's because as a surgeon, you just ask. You've heard this a million times. You know exactly what the patient's going to say when they come in at their three-week visit and their six-week visit. It's the same questions every time because you and I have seen it. It's the end of 10,000 for us. For that patient, it's N of one in this case. So you've got to control that that uh, uh, that anxiety. I think your your willingness to listen to that and to to appreciate that and, and document and educate on that is is really profound. Um, those are, are uh, remarkable insights around that, and I, I think you've you've put it together in a good way. Let me shift gears totally here on you because we want, always want to throw in something controversial or semi-controversial. I uh, had the chance to uh, interview Dr. Leo Whiteside last week. Um, anterior approaches are terrible, apparently, and uh, we should only be doing posterior approaches for hips, and he has a lot of strong thoughts on that. Um, how about you? Uh, 
Well, I trained posterior uh, in Albany, and I also got to put a lot of hips back in. Um, you know, but at the time, you know, that's 20 plus years ago. So, you know, things have definitely improved in our techniques since that time. So, you know, uh, and that was, that was the way to go versus anterolateral versus direct lateral. And then I did my fellowship with direct lateral with Lester and, uh, uh, boy, uh, didn't have to put any hips back in. So, you know, my fellowship year compared to my five previous years, I was impressed. I never had to go to the ER. Uh, however, the abductor limp. Uh, which the posterior guys complain about, and it's it's for real. It definitely happens. Um, not everybody, but a fair number of patients. Uh, and so, you know, that that's a negative. Uh, I did a fair number of two incisions. Um, we actually had pretty good success with it, but the literature was, you know, came out against it strongly after a period of time. So I abandoned it because I was afraid of you know getting sued, uh, just based on the literature, despite having good results. The last. Uh, you know, anterolateral, I never, I didn't really do a lot of anterolateral. I just saw them in residency. And so, you know, a friend of mine reached out to me and said, you know, do you know anything about the anterior hip? I, I, I didn't, even though Dana Mears was at Albany at the time, you know, working on, on this approach. And, uh, you know, I spent three, three and a half years going to labs, thinking about it, looking at the cost of a special table. And um, I finally took the plunge and you know, I wasn't sure I had some successes, you know, patients going home same day, next day, you know, at the time in 2008, that was, that was something to write about, but I wasn't really sure what, what proved to me that it was better was my x-ray tech came to me after about, you know, two months doing an anterior hip and said, Andrew, what, what, what are you doing differently for your patients? They can all get on, because at the time we took x-rays laying down, they can all get on and off the uh, x-ray table with no problem at all. Uh, and that's, I've never seen this before. And, you know, so that's when I knew I had something. I just need to keep refining it. So I respectfully disagree with uh, my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Whiteside. I, I, I never, I'm never going to hit his numbers and so forth, but, but I have a bad hip. I'm having an anterior approach all day long. Um, you know, you, you know, he may be right. There's, there's some people that, that, that if they didn't train doing it, they're, they're not good at it, you know, but, that can be for anything. I mean, I'm, I'm terrible at distal humerus fractures. Do not, do not sign up on my schedule for distal humerus fractures. I agree. You know, so I think you have to, you have to do what you're good at. I, I think that's exactly right. And that's a great way to say that. Um, what, what are your, uh, what are your projects right now? What are you working on? What do you, what do you see coming down the pipe? Um, well, uh, a couple of different things. One is I'm really working on uh, that state program. We, I just did a lady from Pakistan, uh, did a, a gentleman that uh, referred to me from Australia, did a guy, like I said, just drove up to North Carolina. You know, Cassay makes the most sense to me, and I like value. I have a very transparent uh, website. Here's the cost, and here's my value. Every, every total me gets aloe vera, that's a pile of waste, and uh, I've had that myself. It works. We saw in our data um, outside of the studies I published, we saw a uh, 33% uh, reduction in pain scores um, when you add the Ayurveda to my protocol. Um, some patients 50%. So if on day two, there would be a six. This is my average number. They would need to be a three or a four. I find that the Ayurveda cryobration um, is very helpful, but it's, it's not super strong for that first 
three or four days. I think you need something else. You need a adipic canal block of some sort. Um, say that the paintball or the X-Pearls of the world, those things give you great relief, like a, like a marathon runner for the first three days. Um, and after that, they're done, right? Or not a marathon runner, but a sprint, right? The, the cryoablation is like the marathon runner. It's not super fast out of the gate, but, but week after week, month after month, that patient has good uh, pain relief, and I think it helps them uh, be better, be better with um, back to work. So, uh, you know, my cafe program, every patient gets that because I believe in it and I think it makes sense. And I don't have to fight with the insurance company to get it covered. Um, and I've got a big insurer here in town that used to cover it. Now, now currently they're not covering it. Because uh, we're kind of already at the lowest opioid in the nation. Why, why should we cover it? Because zero opioids would be great. And if you want your mom to have the least amount of pain after an otherwise painful surgery, then that's why we should cover it. And by the way, my, my 90-day cost is, you know, at 17 uh, eight, you know, uh, for, for a cash pay. Uh, that, that beats anyone else in your, in your, in your market. So that's why you should cover, you can work with me. But, you know, that, so that's a project right now. The, the, the big uh, player in town wants to, you know, uh, work with us to, to do a pilot program to, to show how we can have a lower cost overall and then hopefully incentivize other surgeons. Now, there's been, I don't, Matt, have you seen a pay increase for, for total knee or total hip in the last 20 years? I haven't. You know, it's, uh, so that's, that's really why I'm looking to tax pay. The patient and I having a personal interaction about what I can get them, what the value is, and I can get a reasonable reimbursement of $3,000. My, my surgery center makes money. The patient is happy because they've got the one of the lowest uh, 90-day costs uh, in the nation. So for them, out of their pocket, that's a great deal, right? And it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, and I really think that's what we should be doing. We should stop hiding behind these NDAs about what we say and what, what we accept and so forth. It's not fair. Marty McCary's book is excellent on that. I don't know if you have a get a chance to read that, but I would recommend it. I'll check that out. For everybody out there, patients, surgeons, anybody in the space that's interested and wants to find you, how do they get to Dr. Andrew Wickline? So it's andrewwicklinemd.com. Um, and the, uh, like I said, if you're a, a cash pay patient, self-care patient, uh, we have uh, the lowest compensation rate uh, in New York um, at 1.6%. That's my hospital. My personal is 1.2%. Uh, we have lowest opioid use published in the nation currently, although I'm certain that uh, many of my good colleagues are going to beat me. I'm going to have to try to work harder to, to get down to zero. And um, you know, that's where I, I want to take care of you. If you're a patient that wants no uh, uh, nonsense from the insurance company and authorization, and you want uh, personalized attention, come come see us. Uh, I'm happy to do so. That's great to hear, and I know a lot of people are going to want to reach out for that. Um, Dr. Wickline, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I've learned a lot just uh, hearing from you, and uh, love your thoughts about visiting other surgeons and learning and if you're open uh, to it, I've, I've got to come to New York and hang out with you. I'm going to wait till it gets a little warmer and I get my uh, second <laughs> dose of COVID uh, vaccine and, uh, and everything's good. Well, I definitely want to do the same. I mean, like I said, it's, it's always a two-way street. Whenever, like I said, I got a young surgeon coming out to visit me uh, from Ohio. And, uh, you know, 
uh, I'm going to probably learn from him as much as uh, I hope to, to, to show him what we're doing. It's, it's, there always has to be that give and take, you know. Um, and I'm thankful for all of the surgeons uh, who might be listening to this that uh, I visited in your uh, OR, you know, uh, Doug Dennis, um, uh, again, Lowry Barnes, and so forth. You know, uh, I really appreciate that, that they took time out of their, it's just a headache when you have a surgeon in some ways, right? You, you're not going at your normal pace Time. We'll make it happen. So great conversation today with Dr. Andrew Wickline. This is a surgeon that uh, clearly uh, I share a lot of values with and that, that cares deeply about his patients and is, is very uh, deeply involved into examining his process and what he's doing. Um, fascinating to hear his insights about patient care uh, protocols for recovery and rehabilitation and opioid sparing surgery. I think this is huge in our our world right now, and I'm looking forward to how these advancements uh, continue to change things for us in the next couple of years. This is Matt Barber with the Ortho Real podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again. <laughs>